the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning from Every beast I will require it, and from man, and from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again Become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people, the whole earth was dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward on, and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father, we give you thanks that you, our holy God, gather us together that you might feed us. You might strengthen us and encourage us. 
I pray that through your word you would feed us this morning and we pray that your spirit would enliven our hearts, give us strength to hear and believe. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, You know, nearly uh, every day when I get home from the office, I feel like I could probably sleep for 24 hours. I guess I'm probably not alone in this. Sleep is a glorious thing. And, you know, then I get home and I'm kind of trying to get cozy and maybe take a little pre, you know, pre-dinner nap. Uh, (laughs) And then Jen reminds me, no, someone's actually coming over for dinner tonight. I'm like, okay. And I wonder, you know, how am I going to get through this, you know, meal without falling asleep in my plate? And my parents always like to remind me when I was a kid, they, have a, they took a picture of me and I fell asleep in a plate of fries with, you know, ketchup all over my face. It's like, is that going to happen to me with my guests because I'm so tired? And then inevitably it happens, you know, people come over, you start talking and you kind of, you know, you get your second wind. And then you're, you're cruising, then you're fine. And then, the, the, then they leave and you're cleaning up. And then when, when you get tired again, then it, it really comes strong. And it's like you hit a wall. And you just, you got to go to bed right away. And then you, as soon as your head hits the pillow, you're out and uh, snoring loud. At least that's me. And, uh, and this is how, how many nights go for me. And I, I bring this up because I think that we often imagine God like this. Like he's, like he's someone who gets tired sometimes. You know, he loses steam at the end of the day, maybe. And he gets a second wind and he's active and he's, he's working in the world. And then he goes quiet again. And you know, one of the things you find throughout Scripture, Psalm 136, especially even in the passage in Job, is this idea that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, right? But does it? We're like, maybe that's hyperbole, right? Maybe it's just overstated. His sure steadfast love endures for a long time, but forever? I mean, guys got to rest, right? And I think, and whether we would say that or not, we probably wouldn't say that, uh, but that's maybe how we actually believe. That's how we think of God. Maybe he's not a God who has endurance like he claims to. Maybe he gets tired. Maybe he gets weary in his work. Maybe he shuts things down sometimes. And you know, one of the things that's profound about this Genesis 9 passage that's before us, the passage I'm sure many of you know well, is an emphatic response to any doubt that we may have of God's endurance in his work. Because Genesis 9 is going to teach us that God does not grow weary in accomplishing his goals. He is unwavering in his commitment to establish his kingdom on earth, right? This kingdom that he began to plant in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. The humanity was, was placed there to help spread this garden city until it covered the earth. This, this kingdom that was threatened because of humanity's fall into sin. This kingdom that was threatened through that pervasive evil that, that caused this flood to come. That kingdom that God established in Genesis 1 and 2 is still the kingdom that he plans to establish in this post-flood world. Despite all the opposition that God has faced, he's still committed to his plan. Despite some of the evil that still lingers in this world, God is committed to his work. I think one of our challenges to actually believe this, though, is again, it's, it's our seeing, right? We don't, we don't see and experience this in our day-to-day lives. Because what do we experience in our day-to-day lives? We experience our day-to-day fights with, with sins, with addictions, and we wonder, is God really at work in my life? If I can't overcome these sins, is God really at work? Or did he fall asleep? Is he not going to help, help me? Further, we see this daily pervasive evil that exists in the world at large. These things make us wonder, is God really 
at work? Is he really doing the things that he promised he would, he would do? And this very reason is, I think, what causes, you know, if you talk to people who are atheists or agnostic, one of the big reasons they'll tell you is if God existed in this world, then these things would not exist. And what Genesis 9 reminds us of is this great truth. that Despite what your eyes may tell you at times, God is not asleep on the job. He is as committed as he ever was and as energized as he ever was to, to the work that's before him. That even in the midst of opposition, even in a world that is still struggling with sin, what do we find God doing in this post-flood world here in Genesis 9? We find him recreating. Re-establishing his kingdom. God loves his work. And and maybe the most wild aspect of this recreation narrative that you find in Genesis 9 is this. Is that he still includes you and I in his plans. Uh, You know, at the very beginning, that was why he made Adam and Eve. One of the reasons was that they would be his image, be his his vice regents, his, his royal people on this earth to spread his kingdom. And they messed up. You think if God learned anything from this project, don't trust humans with this work. They will screw it up. And yet, what do you find here? Him using humanity to bring about his kingdom. His plan to bring about his kingdom has always included humanity. And that is true even in a post-flood world that includes you and I. He is still the father that's committed to inviting us into his work. And so as we consider this, this unwavering commitment that God has to accomplish his work in creation, I think we're going to see this in, in two different ways this morning. For one, we see him, uh, this, this, uh, this unwavering commitment as he recommissions man. And as he recommissions man, we find that he does this despite the sin of man. So first, uh, God's unwavering commitment to his work um, causes him to recommission man. And in this uh, recommissioning of, of, of man, there are a lot of parallels to Genesis 1 and, and 2 happening. We see it from the very beginning here, verse 1. It says, And God blessed blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You know, I imagine, you know, they they, they get off the boat and they get this vast and empty world. And it must be a little bit overwhelming. It's like, what do you do first? It's like, you know, the first day of a long vacation. You kind of wonder, "What what do I do? You don't know what to do with yourself. And so God speaks and he gives them purpose. And the purpose that he gives them echoes what he, the purpose he gave Adam and Eve. He says he blesses them, which uh, is to say he shows favor on them. And this is actually the first time we find these words in the Bible since Genesis 1, 28, when, when God blessed Adam and Eve. And this is what he says. He says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So the same words that he uses here in Genesis 9. He's recommissioning humanity. This is a, a recreation Narrative and Noah is a is a second Adam here. He's he's given the same role that was once given to Adam in the garden to, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. I mean, this is a, a key role that humanity is meant to occupy, and this is one of the key aspects that marriage is meant for. It's not just for your personal fun and pleasure, but it's something we are called to. And one of the core purposes of this is to be fruitful and multiply. And he says it again in, in verse seven here: be fruitful, multiply. It's this refrain. This is part of the aspects of bringing God's kingdom on earth happens from multiplying. Because what are they multiplying here? Well, they're, they're multiplying image bearers, people that bear God's image. We see, you know, in the end of verse 6, for, for God made man in his own image. 
there's an affirmation that although sin exists, we still are humans made in the image of God. It's still image bearers. And we're to multiply God's image until it fills the whole earth. And this is one of the ways that God aims to accomplish his mission is to, so that his people would cover the earth. It's one of the main ways our church has grown is through little babies being born. But a second aspect of this recommissioning is the work that he gives to Noah. You know, and, and later in verse 20, we find Noah doing this after he gets, you know, recommissioned his covenant. He says, and Noah began to, to, and Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. We find Noah working the soil. This recommissioning, it seemed, made, made Noah into this man of the soil. It gave him a purpose. Noah taking his priestly duty like Adam had to serve and protect and to multiply the garden, to expand it. And now Noah is doing that. It's his family's work is the same as Adam's and Eve's to expand this garden city of God until the garden and its inhabitants cover the whole world. And this kind of leads us to this pinnacle aspect of this recommissioning moment, which is the covenant that God makes with Noah. It's the second covenant that's made in scripture. He says this in verse eight. For God said, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the, out of, out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth I will establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So just, just like God made a covenant with Adam in the garden, with the promise of life, so now here in this recreation moment, God covenants again with his people. He binds himself to his people with this covenant, his promises, his resolve is set, and the, and the, the covenant here is a promise of peace. Right? A covenant that doesn't require actually anything of Noah or humanity. That's one of the things that makes this covenant unique. It's, it's simply this statement that God will not do these things. He will not destroy all living creatures again. It's a universal covenant that's made with all humanity, and he's so serious that he, he even covenants with the animals here. They're even included in this. All the critters of the earth. What we begin to see in the second covenant of Scripture is that with each covenant that God makes with his people is a, is a type of recreation moment. Right? From the first covenant in the garden to being the creation moment to this one, right? restating his love and his commitment to this project that mimics the first creation to the covenants that come after. Right? And, and Abraham being, being the birth of a new nation that will bless the world. It's a, it's a recreation moment to the sign of the, of, of the covenant with Moses being Sabbath rest. Right, our Sabbath rest, which points to our future eternal rest in the Lord. Each of these covenants that happen, we see God revealing himself more fully. Showing more fully both his character and his mission to bring heaven to earth. And each is this recreation moment. Bringing that future forever new creation day closer. And one of the things that God does to some of his covenants is he attaches signs. And here we find him attaching a sign that further states these things that, that point to God's peace and his mercy. We see this in verse 12 and 13. He says this, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations that I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
So the sign of this covenant is a, is a bow. And you know, the, the word here for bow is actually often in reference to a war bow, right? A bow and arrow, that kind of war bow. You know, in Habakkuk 3.9, it talks about how God actually vanquishes his enemy with a bow. And it's, it's actually used by his representatives against evil. He's, in Genesis 49, you find the hand of the Lord uh, steadying the, 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 the hand of the bow of his people against his enemies. And what do we find God doing with that bow here? He's hanging it in the sky. No longer will he use it to destroy all creatures like he did in the flood. And so what does he do with this sign of war? But he, he turns the sign of war into a sign of peace. Right? The, the future promise of peace of, of, of the nations in Isaiah, where, right, where spears are turning to pruning hooks and swords into shovels, you, you find glimpses of that here. Happening first here with God is pointing to this future day when all we will have is peace. When instruments of war will be turned into instruments of cultivation and, and life. What a beautiful picture you find here. Right? Where the, the tools of the enemy, the tools of death, are turned into tools of life. God's recommissioning of humanity includes his promise that right, he is continually committed to this project. Unless anyone doubt this truth, right, this bow is placed in the, the sky and the reasoning for this is kind of strange. He doesn't put this sign in the sky for you and I to remember. But verse 16 tells us this, that when the bow is in the clouds, this is God speaking, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God puts this in the sky so that he can remember we talked about this last week. It's not that his memory is bad. His memory is quite good. Um, but it's a confirmation to us that it's surely that he is not a God who forgets. That he is a God who will do the things that he said he will do. I think where our struggle to believe this comes in, in our scene, our forgetfulness, not his. Because when we look at the world, we see evil. Right, we see the evil that is still in the world. We see instruments of war that still get used to murder image bearers. We see evil suppressing truth. We see the image of God marred. We see children harmed and murdered. We see the evil in our own hearts, our own hate towards others, our daily struggles with sin. And this is where this sign actually has something else to teach us about this newly recommissioned world, this, this world that's recommissioned where sin exists is, is this. When do rainbows show up most clearly? It's in storms. Right? There can be no bow without a storm. Remembrance happens in the storms. It happens in times of darkness that although there is wickedness in the world, God is committed to his peace. It is when there is wickedness prevailing in the world that God remembers this the most. His remembrance is seen most clearly in the storms. And it's in these that we remember that God is committed to his peace and his mercy, not just to make instruments of war and instruments of peace, but further to, to, to take a world filled with war and fill that world with his peace and his love and his mercy and his kingdom. So the future of new creation that this re recommissioning points to, we find in, in these things is going to come about no matter what. His covenant secures it for us. There's nothing that you or I can do to stop this from happening. Not even our sin and our struggles can stop this. God's unwavering commitment to use humans to do this work is going to happen despite you and I. 
And this is what you see next here is that God's unwavering commitment to his work to bring about his kingdom happens despite us. It happens despite us. And the first, the first aspect of this you, you, you begin to see here in some of the stuff that we've already looked at where there's some dissonance in this recreation moment. For one, we, we live in a fallen world where, where many try to be fruitful, multiply, many try to have children and are unable to. We live in a world where not everyone will be able to be married for multiple reasons. Our recreation call is beyond us. This is bigger than you or I can actually do. Despite bodies that don't always work, despite relationships that we want, desire, don't always happen, God is still committed to his work. And you get this beautiful picture of this in Psalm 113. He says, you know, he makes barren woman the mother of children. And we find this actually happening within the walls of the church. That you become mothers and fathers of the children that are in the church. But also you find here that there's no longer harmony between us and the other, you know, critters of the world. You know, verse 2 tells us that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon every thing that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. And your hand, they are delivered. So you see this, there's, a, there's now a new tension. There's an enmity between us and the created world. There's a, a lack of peace and because in Genesis 1, right, they weren't allowed to eat animals. But now in this new world, we do eat animals. Right, the lion doesn't lay down with the lamb in peace yet. It devours the lamb. Despite an animal kingdom that wages war, God is still committed to his work. And just after that kind of stark reality of like this animal kingdom uh, being at war with it, within itself, we find another reality of the new world, and that's that of, of murder. Right? Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. The reason why that law has to be created is because murder now is a thing. And one of those things that this shows, there's nothing more special than being a human. Because all humans bear God's image. Even your enemies, believe it or not. From your political enemies to your neighbor enemies to your workplace enemies, those who despise you. Even those people bear God's image. And we can't just kill our enemies because spilling the blood of another image bearer is the chief of crimes and results in the death of the trespasser. In this, you find God's commitment to his promise happens despite you and I, despite our propensity towards evil and murder. God is a God who's committed to peace and to bringing his peace to bear. I think we see this play out more, day, more clearly in, in aspect to our day-to-day lives in the, in the second story here with Noah and the vineyard. Right, Noah, after the, the covenant, he gets to work. He puts his hands in the ground and he plants a, a vineyard, which depending on the grape would probably take two to three years to, to get production out of, to be able to harvest. And then he'd have to put it in, in something that it can become fermented in and turn into wine. And that would probably take another year or so. So this whole process of winemaking would probably be three to four years. And when it is ready, what does Noah do? Well, he gets drunk. He gets really drunk. Uh, verse 21, it says this. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So he gets, drinks enough to get drunk enough to pass out naked in his tent. This is our second Adam, right? Our recommissioned covenant head, Noah, passed out drunk in his, and naked in his tent. It's almost comical if it's not sad. And, you know, one aside that this 
I think, alludes to for us is that all the heroes in the Bible are very flawed men. You know, cancel culture would have a, a field day with the heroes of Scripture. There's plenty of material there for them. And uh, your heroes are flawed people. Your leaders, your pastors are flawed. Yes, even I am a very flawed man. You could talk to Jim, but don't, because there's too many stories to tell you. Um, but there is this truth that all of us, right, all of us are a mixture of sinner and saint. All of us are a mixture of, of, of sinner and saint. And if a scripture presented biblical heroes as perfect, you'd probably never actually believe them, would you? Because we know that we all struggle with sin. Even the greatest men of scripture did profound evil. And yet, God is undetermined to, uh, undeterred to bring about his promises. Despite the sin that dwells in our hearts, despite our, our sin that's at war within us, that comes out in our heroes, God is committed to his peace. Even in the storms of our sin, his bow is still in the sky. But the story gets worse. Because what happens after Noah is Nagus's ham? The, the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So Ham right, sees the nakedness of his father and you know, nakedness in, in Scripture after Genesis 3 is almost always pointing to shame. Where once nakedness right in the garden was a sign of glory and, and, and honor and, and peace and just, just beauty, sin has turned it now into a sign of, of shame. And what does... Ham do when he sees the shame of his father? Well, he goes and he tells his brothers about it. Instead of covering this shame, he exposes it. He promotes it. You know, he gossips about it. And at the root of gossip is a desire to, to publish the shame of others. And even in that moment, the bow remains in the clouds. Despite the evil of Ham, God's faithfulness to his promise is seen actually in his inaction in this moment. And although Ham's evil is apparent, and it says that his descendants, what we find is his descendants become the, the who's who's of bad guys in the Bible, first of which are the Canaanites, which, you know, the first readers of Genesis were on the precipice of, of going into the land where Canaan was and taking it over. Um, his, his line, his descendants, of the, the who's who's of bad guys, uh, his brothers, Ham's brothers, Shem and Japheth, Act honorably. We see this here in verse 23. It says, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. What a beautiful picture. Right? The care they took to love and care for their father, who was exposed. His shame was out there. They, they took a garment and they put it on their shoulders and they walked backwards so they wouldn't see him and their faces were turned backwards as they covered him. The honor, the care that they took to cover his shame, to, to cover him even in his sin. This is where they are, they're picking up and joining this recreation narrative, picking up their mantle to expand God's peace and kingdom. This is the role that the church and you and I are supposed to play in the world, the, that of Shem and Japheth, that we aren't the people who publish the shame of others. We're the people who take great care to cover it. And after this scene, you find this series of, of curses and, and blessings, right? Ham and, and his lineage is marked with the similar curse that the serpent received. And, 
And Shem and, and Japheth are blessed for their faithfulness to the covenant God, Yahweh. This is what you see here in verse 26. And he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Right, the, the covenant name of God is, is invoked here. The Lord, Yahweh. Shem is blessed because he blesses Yahweh. And Shem becomes what we find later as the father of Abram, who's the father of the Israelites. And, and Japheth becomes the father of the nations that become the Gentiles. And what's promised to him? But here, verse 23, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. There's a beautiful promise to Japheth that his people will dwell in the houses of Shem. And even here we find a beautiful future promise. One that we are actually living out today. As Gentiles dwelling in the house of Israel. As the ones that are grafted into the community. The people of God. And this happens despite us. Not because of our great righteousness. Despite our propensity towards sin. God is undeterred to bring about his promises. He withholds his wrath and works through flawed humanity to bring about his kingdom. He will see the house of Israel become a beacon of peace. Even though we've read the Old Testament, we know Israel goes through some rocky times, he will use them. And he will bring all nations into that house despite us. The question is, well, how? How is God able to accomplish these things, to use humans despite our very flawed nature? How does he accomplish all of this despite us? When the best of us are so deeply flawed, the, the reason is this, that because even in the work he gives us, he doesn't fo it doesn't fully depend on you and I, but on the God who is the great keeper of the covenants, it is fully dependent on him, right? that he keeps his promise to, to bring about the promised seed who would bring eternal peace in Christ, right? who takes the curse that is due to us on himself, Jesus, who tells us that if we have hate in our hearts, that we're all guilty of murder, right? He takes the capital punishment on himself. So our blood is not spilled, but his is because of our trespasses. Where the second Adam, Noah, here failed, getting drunk and naked, having his shame exposed. So Christ, the, the greater Noah, the, the true second Adam of a new creation, comes and gives us a new wine to drink. And he fully covers our shame, taking the curses of sin on himself, and now when the war bow of God comes out to judge at the end of time, we find it isn't aimed at you and I, but at himself. Through his wounds, we are healed. God is committed to his work. That he came and died so that you might have life in him. And now not even our, our evil can thwart his plan. Because Jesus the righteous has come. And the arbiter of a, a new covenant, a new creation has come. And he's birthed new creation life into you by his spirit. And now, as we are new creation people, we're actually still, even today, even after all that's written in the scriptures, invited into his work. Not through our power, but through his working through us. And just as Jesus covered the shame of others, you and I are to cover each other's shame. In fact, I think the community of God is actually built on this truth, to bear with one another in love. There's only one way a community like this can exist together, and it's to bear with one another because it's not easy. We offend each other. We, we speak against each other. And in this, we are supposed to bear with one another in love, to overlook offenses, to cover each other's shame. 
In a world at war, we are to be a world at peace. In a world that wants to pick us apart and nitpick everything that we do wrong with each other, we're supposed to overlook those things and to love each other and to encourage each other towards peace, towards a shalom. We are a new creation people. And I think one of the ways that we actually accomplish this is by first seeing each other as image bearers. We are all image bearers. Every human, even the people you may despise, they are first and foremost image bearers. And I think it's when we learn to see the image of God in everybody, in all the people of the earth, that we can begin to have compassion on them, even in their annoyances to us, like Christ had compassion on us when we were his enemies. Right? It's in that state that he actually died for us, to make us his friends. And he calls us to do the same, to make friends with our enemies. And the question is, are you willing to die for your enemy like Christ died for you? Are you willing to lay down your swords? Are you willing to make peace? There's a profound truth here that God is unwavering in his commitment to make this happen. It is such a sure thing that it is, it is as if it has already come to pass. You are a new creation people now, called to live new creation lives in a world that has not yet been made new as we have been. We're supposed to be that new creation in this world, that light shining in the darkness. May we be a people who grow in this. May we be a people who commit ourselves to this work of expanding the kingdom of God, expanding his peace, expanding the, the, the covering of shame, despite the opposition that you and I will receive for these things. May we do this as we rest in God's work. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious God in heaven, we give you thanks for your words that encourage and challenge, your words that remind us just how deep, unshakable, your grace, your mercy, your love for us is. And it's that same love and unshakable love and grace that you have for us that you call us to have for others, for the outsider, for the outcast, for those who would right now be called your enemies. May we extend your peace to them that they can have life as we have life. May your light go into this world, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.